Our sermon text today is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tiliam, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel arose arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgah. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, You were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. When then did you not obey the word, excuse me, when then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rush upon the spoil, or why, uh, and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgah. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, warning, uh, this reminder, God, of how easy it is to stray from you, God. We pray that you would use it to stir us up in faith, to cling to you, to follow you, to worship you from a heart that's made pure by the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would love you from the heart all the days of our life, and you would strengthen us to bear much fruit that would last. In the, son of your, or in the name of your Son, amen. 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 Before we get into First uh, Samuel, um, there's a few things I'd like to preface uh, the sermon before we dig into it. First, I don't like to go more than a couple Sundays without uh, digging into some uh, portion of the Old Testament. I do this because Christians, uh, most Christians anyhow, are painfully ignorant of the contents of the Old Testament. And this is a problem for reasons that should be obvious, but I'll give you a few. Uh, namely, 2 Timothy says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scripture that Paul had in mind was the Old Testament there. Uh, the Old Testament can do all those things, reprove, correct, train, etc. cetera. Uh, moreover, every New Testament book cites and builds on the revelation first found in the law and prophet. I remember one of the first books of the Bible I ever read before I was even a Christian was the book of Revelation, and it made no sense. And that's why it's at the back of the Bible, right? You read your way. You don't start with, you know, return of the king and hope it will make any sense. Um, no, the, the whole... Uh, all 66 books we need to know. We need to study them. They're all valuable and should be precious to us. Uh, the church is starved for the history and wisdom and instruction found in the New Testament. People always ask me, what's the best book on masculinity? Proverbs, right? That's the best book. All the things that people are hungry for, uh, I think you'll find in the Old Testament right now. So that's one reason. Uh, the other reason is there has been a revival in Old Testament preaching in some sectors of the church, primarily the Reformed world, um, and it falls into a category that is sometimes referred to as redemptive historical preaching. Now, what is that? Well, simply put, it's the sort of preaching that seeks to take the text of the Old Testament and show you how it relates to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's not all bad. Uh, Luke 24, 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So 
Everything connects to Jesus. He is the substance of that which was being foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and it's good and necessary to draw that out when preaching the Old Testament. However, redemptive historical can be taken to an extreme where it is not helpful. In my observations, and you know, another name for redemptive historical is probably gospel-centered. You hear that a lot, gospel-centered preaching. Um, but my observation's been the same as, uh, as Dr. John Frame, who wrote, uh, I get the impression that some who stress redemptive history really want to avoid practical application. They want the whole sermon to focus on Christ, not on what works uh, the believers should do. They want it to focus on the gospel, not on law. So they want the sermon to evoke praise of Christ, not to demand concrete change in people's behavior. In their mind, Christ-centeredness excludes any sustained focus on specific practical matters. Um, I recall a conversation I had with one of these uh, type of guys over uh, David's battle with Goliath, and he didn't like that I taught in it that um, the emphasis, well, the emphasis I brought to it was that David was an example in the face of the enemies of God, how we ought to imitate, uh, or how we should imitate his example as you're facing enemies. Be bold like David, have faith like David. Uh, go after the enemies of God like David. And he told me, well, that's not what that passage is about. It's not about uh, slaying giants. It's actually about Jesus, the true and better uh, David, slaying the giant of sin on the behalf of the true Israel. And he said to preach in any other way would to be uh, to feed into a moralistic and legalistic understanding of the Bible. So there's a, there was a viral, viral clip of uh, Pastor Matt Chandler doing this whole uh, shtick where he says, you're not the David, you're not the David. I, I start to wonder if these people think David's the David. Because if you read the passage, it is a person absolutely slaying a giant. That is what the passage is about first and foremost, right? And I, I, how can I not take that lesson from there that those that love God are willing to fight in his name against his enemies and slay even giants? I think that's fair. And, but they want every punchline, everything to be Jesus, and they even more depersonalize it to gospel, right? Gospel, 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 over and over again. It's like they have spiritual Tourette's um, when they're talking. And um, I'd always, when I'd go to those conferences, I was getting sick of it back in my Acts 29 days. I'd say, hey, will you pass, uh, pass me the, the gospel cream? So I want to put it on my gospel pancake uh, so I can have, you know, can I have some gospel coffee? They think putting gospel in front of everything makes it more powerful, spiritual. All they're doing is diluting it to mean nothing, nothing at all. Yes, all scripture is about Jesus, but it's also calling us to, to be conformed to his image, to become more like him in all ways. And we can learn a lot by examples like David. So this is uh, what I see in that sort of preaching more and more. The punchline has to be the gospel, and if it's not, it's somehow moralism and dead religion. And they would be uh, benefited from actually reading older sermons from guys like Calvin. In particular, read Calvin, uh, Calvin's sermons on Deuteronomy. Calvin's wonderful. Barely talks about himself. He, very rare to have long uh, illustrations. He just gets into the text. He would go up there with his Greek Bible and just preach right from it. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, so they should go read those guys and, and see the reality of what Reformed preachings looked like over the years. Now, the gospel does change everything. It does give us a new nature with new desires, with a new source of power, the person of the Holy Spirit. 
That means we can learn from these examples. We can actually obey God's commands, not perfectly and certainly not for our justification, but as an act of worship with a heart that desires to please our Father God. So I, I reject that dichotomy. I think it's wholly unnecessary and ultimately foolish. The Old Testament has are both points to the work of Christ and provides believers with many examples and commandments that encourage us in our pursuit of holiness. All these things need preached, and there is no perfect formula on how much you must or how much you should preach law and grace. And when people used to not stay at our church, I'd call them up and ask them why they left. And I was like, just, I just want to know um, what, what it was. And uh, this was a couple churches ago. And I remember one guy saying, I just, just too much law, man. There's too much law in your sermons. And I wasn't even the main preacher. So that's always easy to take criticism when it's for someone else. I was like, you know. But, uh, but uh, you know, when I hear that, how much law is enough? How much of gospel? What, what is this magical equation in their mind? And I think... Uh, what I was hearing is I don't like to be pricked. I don't like my conscience uh, to be pricked, but I, I like sermons that make me squirm sometimes. You know, I need it. I want to stay alive. I want to feel the Holy Spirit working on my heart through the Word of God to move me to action and give me also uh, the confidence that comes from knowing that I'm saved by grace, that I'm beloved of God. But nonetheless, it is to move you. It is to stir you up, and there's no perfect balance you have it in your mind. You, you try preaching Sunday after Sunday. That's a criticism pastors always get. And that's like you criticizing a surgeon, how to do surgery, and you, what do you do? You, you mow your lawn or something. What do you know what you're talking about? It's hard, right? It's very hard. And there's never a, a perfect uh, balance. When I go to other churches, I say things that other pastors aren't allowed to say to their congregation. <laughs> because I, I just fly away here in a couple hours. <laughs> Uh, I bring this all up this morning because I'm going to put before you an example that we are to learn from. And Scripture gives us good examples. Think of the cloud of witness documented in Hebrews 11. The author goes to great length to call us to remember all these examples of great men and women of faith. Their example is meant to stir us up and onward in our pursuit of God. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. But Scripture also provides us with negative examples. These are the examples that say, don't do that. Don't be like that guy. They are examples that serve as a warning to us. Scripture is full of warnings, and they're real, and they're useful, and they're powerful. Paul, exhorting the Corinthians, calls to remembrance those who perished in the desert. He writes, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, the 23, and 23,000 fell in one day. 
nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Good reminder, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So we too can learn from the negative examples God provides us with in Scripture. And that is the sort of example we're looking at today, the example of King Saul. In particular, we're going to focus on how Saul deals with being confronted about his rebellion via partial obedience. Now, get down there. Uh, this, uh, this passage is a turning point in the life of King Saul. It's his defining moment. And I, I think it's scary to think that such moments actually uh, even exist. It's a fearful thing to know that a single decision can result in lifelong ramifications. This knowledge should lead us to be all the more diligent and sober as we make decisions. Things have consequences. The life of Saul is laid out for us in Scripture, and we can survey it and see where he went wrong, and it's easy to primarily remember him as a bad king, and he was a bad king, Uh, one that was jealous of David, one that consulted with a witch, one that made rash judgments, one who was tormented by an evil spirit, one that died at the end of his own sword by the act of selfish suicide. But Saul didn't start that way. He actually started all right. In chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, Saul demonstrates humility when receiving praise from the prophet Samuel. Uh, Samuel or Saul replied to Samuel, he said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? In my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? And in chapter 10, it tells us that God changed his heart and the Spirit came upon Uh, upon him, and he prophesied. And then, in chapter 11, certain worthless men despise Saul's authority, but we see Saul show mercy instead of getting drunk on power. Uh, This is what it says. Then the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then, chapter 12, Samuel gives all Israel a solemn warning. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Now, in chapter 13, we do see the beginning of Saul's descent. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgah, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, 
Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I have forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, you ha- now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, chapter 14, we get the Saul that most people remember. He's a divided man. He builds an altar uh, to the Lord. Then he valiantly defends the Israelites. And then he makes a foolish vow that almost cost him the life of his son, which leads us to where we're at. Now, we could end up like Saul if we don't take heed. We could start well, but make more and more compromises along the way until there are devastating results in our lives. So don't judge him so quickly. I, it is my practice to put myself in the, the negative while I'm reading scripture. I, I like to take on the role of the antagonist, not the protagonist, and think, how is this true of me? How am I a Sadducee? How am I a Pharisee? How am I like Saul? How can I repent and grow in holiness as opposed to like thinking of my friends? Uh, one way you know someone has understood a sermon uh, is that it hits them. Uh, it's always a little discouraging when I hear someone say, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. Well, I preached it just for you. you know? They didn't have to be here. You're who I had in mind. Really? No. But God has you here, so always like, who am I? How can I repent? How can I learn from Saul's mistakes in this passage and don't repeat them? How can I heed the warnings of the Holy Spirit to stay on the straight and narrow? Well, in verse 1 through 3, God, we see God's command. God accomplishes two things in his command. First, he's testing Saul. Saul isn't his own man. Yeah, he was nobody of consequence. Uh, all that he had was given to him by the gracious hand of the Lord. Saul may be king, but God is the king of kings. He rules over everyone, both great and small. In chapter 14, Saul has a very small army, but now he has a very large army. He has gone from 600 uh, to an army of well over 200,000, and he's had uh, many more military victories, and he's truly become a great king, at least as the world measures kings. And that is the question, isn't it? Is he great in the eyes of God? We know what God is looking for in a king. He's looking for someone that obeys from the heart. So here, God tests Saul by giving him a command. Will Saul obey from the heart? Is Saul truly great? Second, he is judging Amalek. God wants Amalek utterly destroyed. Everything, men, women, children, infants, all the possessions. They are to be destroyed. He is commanding them to scorch their earth and wipe them away forever. And this command is a scandalous to the mind of modern men and even to some believers. And they'll bring things up like, isn't this genocide? Isn't this ethnic cleansing? Doesn't this demonstrate that the God of the Bible, at least the Old Testament, is a monster? No, not at all. We're the monsters. This isn't ethnic cleansing. God isn't having them killed because they come from a certain localized gene pool. It's not because they have a big nose or dark skin or anything like that. 
He is killing them because they are godless and immoral and wicked people. And after repeated calls to repentance, they did not repent. So he is judging them. It's about the character of their culture, not their genetics. The Amalekites committed a great sin against God's people. As they entered the promised land, they would trail the Israelites and pick off any of those that lagged behind. So women, children, the sick, the elderly, they had absolutely no morals in warfare. In Deuteronomy 25:18, uh, God says that they have no fear of God, no fear of him. And God's decided now is the time for them to be judged. And he has chosen Israel as his instrument of judgment, Saul and the army in particular. Now, does that offend you, right? Does it offend you? It's, when we come to Scripture, we've got to be honest about how Scripture makes us feel, right? And I've been seeing a tendency to, it's a, it's a cognitive distortion called emotional reasoning, right? So emotional reasoning is when you read something and if it offends you, then you think it's offensive because feelings become the arbiter of truth, right? So if I say something that offends you, it has to be my fault because you're offended. It can't be your fault where maybe you shouldn't be offended about that. You should get control of yourself, okay? You should grow up a little bit. Uh, you are responsible for your own emotions. So when we come to Scripture and we're like shocked by something, you need to remember you're the problem, right? And you need to align yourself to Scripture. You need to discipline your emotions. And that's what we have to tell, that's what we have to tell other people when they're shocked by this. Like, this is God's Word. You have to... Uh, line up with it. And if you have a problem with God destroying the Amalekites, you have a problem with the whole of Christianity because at the heart of this is judgment. Why do we need Jesus on the cross? Why is the good news so good? Well, because God is holy and he will punish sin. That's uh, why it's wonderful to have an advocate in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so good that justification, that change in status before God from guilty to innocent is by faith and faith alone. One more thing. Modern men are shocked by the passage, by this passage, but almost always ambivalent uh, about bloodthirsty, gory movies, video games, and books. Uh, shocked here, yet entertained elsewhere. And they usually are fine with the terrible and wretched sin of abortion. And our culture at present is built on mountains and mountains of millions of dead babies. And I think we hate the judgment of uh, Amalek not because we're righteous, but uh, rather because we see that we too deserve to be wiped out. God, have mercy on us. Oh, that we would judge ourselves rightly instead of judging God wrongly. God is always right. God is always the protagonist. Verse four through eight uh, highlights Saul's failure to obey. Saul seems like he's going to do a good job. He gathers the people, shows mercy on his allies, and then attacks the Amalekites. But he fails to obey God. He only partially fulfills the command of the Lord. And God's command was clear. Now go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But what happens? Well, it says Saul and the people spared a gag. And the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. That they utterly destroyed. They only destroyed the worthless stuff and kept the good stuff. There is a wicked pragmatism at work here. 
Why waste all this stuff? We can use it for glory, all right? To use it to give God glory and the good of Israel. In essence, Saul and the people are attempting to improve on the command of God. They think they know better than the Lord. And this is the habit of so many Christians today to think that they can out-nice God, that they, they, they can make things a little easier for everyone. There's always people that, um, you know, you say things and people get mad and, you know, sometimes they cuss at you and take off. Um, and there's always someone that thinks they could do it a better way, right? That if you just said it in this tone, you just did it this way, you could, you could be a better PR man for God. They just don't understand God, right? But, you know, think of Jesus in John 6. Uh, after the crowds leave because they're offended by his preaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, like, does he like, oh, wait, wait, don't run off. You misunderstood me. I love what he says to his disciples. You going to leave too? You going to take off? I just drove his gauntlet down, right? And uh, so we always think we know better than God. God. God's word is perfect. It is a perfect rule for faith and practice in your life. We don't need to correct upon it. You try to correct the word of God, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. You're going to find yourself going down a tunnel into a dark, dark pit of heresy. Cling to it. Don't try to improve on it. We must obey his commands as he gives them. There is no editing allowed. Now, verse 9 through 31, God was not pleased with Saul's disobedience. He tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. You may ask, how can God have regrets? Regrets imply that you made a bad decision that had bad consequences that you did not foresee. How can this be true of God? Well, it can't. Even in this very passage, he says he doesn't change his mind, right? So scripture's clear. Uh, Psalm 139 teaches us that God knows all, foresees all. Whole scripture shows us that God's in absolute control. And we always must work from the clear passages of Scripture to the cloudy passages of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, God's regret, whatever it might be, isn't like the regret of man, right? And I think the, the, the point, the big point you, sh- you should walk away with is not getting lost in some long, you know, I don't know if you do this like me, but you just start reading all these different commentaries and kind of get lost on the, the minutiae. Um, And that's fine as an exercise, but make sure you don't lose the big takeaway, which is God is not pleased with Saul. Now, Samuel was broken over God's coming judgment. Samuel had great hopes for Saul, so much so that he struggled in what I assumed was intercessory prayer for Saul all throughout the night. But Saul, like the Amalekites, had plenty of opportunities to humble himself before the Lord and had not done so. And God would not heed Samuel's prayer. And brethren, do not delay in humbling yourself before the Lord. Uh, When you feel conviction, when God brings to mind how you've sinned against him or sinned against another, uh, then deal with it immediately, quickly, right? The one way to stay strong in your walk with the Lord and, and to maintain relationships is the same way you maintain a house, right? When you walk by and you see something on the ground that needs to be thrown away, you pick it up and you throw it away. And if you're always doing that, the house stays relatively in order. Same like if you eat, you know, kids, if you have a dishwasher, that's a wonderful gift. It's even better when you just wash off your plates and stick it in the dishwasher. Then there's not like plates everywhere. That's how you keep short accounts, keep short accounts with God. So 
as soon as you're convicted, as soon as it hits you, that's when you deal with it. Because when you start making excuses for sin, you become more and more at ease with greater and greater sin. Lawlessness leads to lawlessness, always. So you want to keep short accounts. Not, there's not, there's, there's, there's going to be a last opportunity for everything in life. And then you'll stand before the judge of all men. Samuel, Samuel quickly finds out how wrong he was about Saul. In verse 12, Samuel is told that Saul has built a monument for himself. This is the essence of idolatry. Saul is seeking to make a name great for himself, not for the Lord. And I'm not totally against uh, buildings or whatnot being dedicated to some godly man. I did do pulpit supply some years ago at this uh, Baptist church and had about like 60 people. And the young in there was like 65, you know, a lot of blue hair. Um, and I, I had no intentions of taking over. I was just, I'd come in and fill. There are many, and I just preached through Ephesians every time I came there. <laughs> just didn't tell them what I was doing. That was really good. Yeah, I know. Um, but uh, I remember out in the front of the foyer, they said they'd been having a hard time to get a pastor, and they actually had a good deal of money. But there was this bronze bust of her, of the, the, the daughter of the founding pastor. It's just this big, like, it's him, like, sitting there. And I'm like, man, if, if I, I told her the only way a guy like me would ever come to your church is if you removed it. <laughs> like, it would have to come out of. It couldn't be in the foyer. I'm not coming in and trying to live up to a guy that's been turned into a statue who I guarantee was flesh and blood in the real life and full of all imperfections. I don't want to be measured that way. So she was building. She was honoring her father. I get it. Um, but you're supposed to let the lips of another praise you. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure her dad would have been uncomfortable with it. Um, and Saul's not godly. Now, it may be that you don't have any bronze statues of yourself or whatever, um, but there are ways that we build monuments to ourselves, and that's in one of the big ways is curated social media, right, on, on Facebook or Instagram. And, I, you know, um, if I have a bad photo of myself, I'm usually not going to post that because, you know, it's a, it's a bad photo. You know, you try, not, you try to put the highlights online. I get that. But uh, some of these people, uh, first off, can you, can you read your Bible and have breakfast without taking a picture of it and putting it on Instagram? Is it even possible? Does it count? I don't know. Um, but you know when you start trying to arrange everything to make you appear a very certain way. Right, and, uh, and if, if your social media stream or whatever you're posting is an accurate reflection of the highlights of your life, I don't think that's sinful or there's anything wrong with it, but you can try to make yourself appear to be someone you're not. I've seen these new filters that are crazy, like these filters that literally change you know, the, the way your face looks um, when you take pictures and like move things around. And, and we're trying to make ourselves look great. We've become self-focused, and, and we participate through voyeurism, through watching other, everyone else like, oh, man, I wish I was great like that guy, who's not even great to begin with, right? It's all, it's all fake, you know? And I know, I know big-name social media influencers. I know them in real life. I've had meals with them. And let me just tell you, not very many are impressive, okay? Their editing skills... Um, their understanding of how algorithms and narcissism works, that can be a little impressive. Don't build monuments to yourself. 
Now, verse 13, listen to the words of Saul. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Spiritual sounding speech is easy to manufacture, right? Whenever I go to um, CRC churches, some of you will get this, not all of you will, but I, I uh, w- was teaching somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but I said, uh, today we're gonna study the chiastic structure of Nehemiah, you know, I just made up some crazy thing about chiasms, right? Do you guys know what chiasms are? Does that happen out here? Yeah. It's a, it, it sounds, ooh, chiasms, you must be smart. You know, uh, so we, have, we all have these types of Christianese that we use to cover and lift ourselves up and make ourselves uh, sound holy or, or smarter than we actually are. Um, a good practice when you hear a word you don't know is like, what it, just ask the person what it means and find out if they know it, and then they don't, and then you both can go find out and stop using words you don't understand. Um, and that gets me really far because I'm always hearing words. I don't know what that word means, uh, especially when it's made up Christian words. Um, and they are often used to cover up or veil all sorts of disobedience. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, the Spirit of God led me to do this or that thing, right? And uh, the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God in consultation with the wisdom of your elders, is that what you're talking about? Or do you mean that inner prompting that could perhaps be chilly, right? What are you, you know, what is it? And I've seen people uh, twist the word of God to get away with things. And the most extreme example I can offer you that's hilarious is a woman, it's hilarious as twisted as it is, but she uh, decided the Lord had led her to divorce her husband because after all, does not the scripture say to put on the new man, right? So, really? Different reaction from the first service. Wow. The first service is like, ha, ha, ha. You guys like, oh, what does that mean? I don't know. Which one's worse? I'd have to figure. Anyhow, um, it's hard to know if Saul here is being purely deceptive or he actually has deluded himself into believing his own lie. Regardless, Saul hasn't obeyed God, and Samuel does the hard work of waking him up to reality. And that is hard work. It isn't fun to confront people. I've had people in churches say, oh, you just get off on confronting us and rebuking us. Uh, No, pastors don't. And I once was called to a home to a guy who his wife uh, called me up and said, will you come over and talk to him? And I come over. And it's like, I'm getting off work. It's like 9.30 at night after working a long shift. I want to go see my pretty wife. And I come over, and this guy is drunk, laying in the middle of his floor, and his tidy whitey is crying. And I was like, all right, well, let's put some clothes on you. Uh, come outside. I brought a cigar over for him to smoke. I was like, here's a cigar. Let's talk about what's going on. And, uh, and he's like, you, just, you get off on rebuking me, don't you? You're, he, that's what he said. He was still drunk. And I said, you know what my wife looks like, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, do you know what you look like? Right, I could be with her, and she's not sweaty and gross and drunk and half naked, um, but instead I'm here with you. No, I'm doing this because I love you. And when your pastors correct and rebuke you, it is from love. They're trying to set you on the right way to help you. Right? Obedience leads to good things in your life. So Samuel's got to do this really hard work. And that's hard because T.S. Eliot once put, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And you know that when they're confronted, that more often than not, they're going to try to wiggle away. 
Samuel says, you obeyed God? Oh, yeah, what's with all these sheep and oxen then? And Samuel's got him caught red-handed. He should just repent, right? That doesn't usually go that way. He immediately, uh, Saul tries to wiggle away by doing two things. First, he blames shifts. Oh, those. Well, the people kept them. Saul shifts it to the people. Saul's trying to create plausible deniability. Second, he says, it isn't what you think, right? First off, I didn't technically disobey, right? It was those guys. And then he says, it's not what you think. I kept them for worship, to do good stuff, to make sacrifices. Our intentions are good. Other than this, we, we destroyed all the other stuff. But Samuel doesn't buy it. He calls out his pride. He used to think of himself as small, but now he thinks of himself as great. God had given him a command, and he didn't keep it. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rush upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Note that Samuel calls attention to the sight of the Lord. Right? You can deceive your pastors, you can deceive me, you can even deceive yourself, but you cannot deceive the Lord. He sees all. Now, that, that's not just fear tactics. All of, the, all of the suffering that you do for the kingdom of God, all those uh, faithful good works you do that no one sees, God sees and rejoices in it. The fact that God sees all, it should be an encouragement to those that seek to live a life of, of faith. But to those who hide their intentions and hide their sins, God sees that too. And that ought to be terrifying. It ought to wake you up to want to live in the light. So you can stop with the blame shifting and stop with the excuses. In verse 20 through 22, Saul confront, or continues to profess his innocence. Uh, and, and to repeat that the people are to blame and it was done to honor God through sacrifice. He's trying to minimize his sin and maximize his righteousness. This is something we all do in one way or another. And again, Samuel's not buying it. You know, I think about that when you're, that's the hard part of confronting people and calling them to repentance is that uh, people will throw kind of red herrings at you and try to get away and you just got to, as a parent, you gotta, you gotta do this, um, where you just gotta stay on them and deal with each excuse one at a time and, until it's, you got them more or less cornered. And uh, one of the hardest parts of faithful ministry, whether it's from a pastoral perspective or just from the mutual love that the body gives itself, is that uh, you, have to, you actually have to put some effort in and, and kind of chase them down at some level. And it's hard stuff, but it's good again. It's really good. So Samuel uh, isn't always faithful, but here he's being faithful to go after him. And he says, he gives us these amazing words. It always reminds me of that, that Keith, the Keith Green song, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. So Keith Green's a guy from the 70s that half his songs are super goofy, but he loves the Lord, and other songs are just uh, very beautiful. So look that song up. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So to obey is better than sacrifice. God isn't after those sort of sacrifices. What he wants is a heart, 
right? He wants your heart. This is the theme, or a theme, that's repeated time and time again in Scripture. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Mark 12.33. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 7 through 8. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Luke eleven forty two. Why is obedience better than sacrifice? Sacrifice, in the sense being talked about here, is actually an attempt to gain independence from God. If we sacrifice for him, then we've put him in our debt. If we sacrifice for God, he owes us something, so we think. Sacrifice is a way of buying whatever we want to get from God. Protection, deliverance, provision, favor, or even permission to sin while at the same time remaining independent from him. God, look at all I've done for you. You owe me. It's only fair, we say. We demand our goodies from God, but we retain our right to do what we want with our lives. We need to make sure we throw a few sacrifices God's way every once in a while to keep him at bay. That is the attitude of sacrifice that Saul personified. But God wants it all, every last bit, every square inch of earth, but every square inch of your heart, the whole thing is his. You are his. You've been bought with the price, redeemed. You're all his. Have we done this before? Are you doing it now? Are you justifying some sin in your life by taking comfort in some sacrifice you've made? Are you stealing and justifying it by using some of the money for a good purpose? Are you lustfully looking at joggers and justifying it with, at least I'm abstaining from the internet stuff, are you neglecting to love your wife by justifying it by buying her something she wants? You know, you're not doing the thing scripture calls, but you're going to like, well, I better bring home something tonight that makes up for it. Are you not submitting to your husband and justifying it uh, by obeying God elsewhere? I guarantee that this temptation, if not a reality, in your life, it, it, that if it's not a reality in your life, it's actually happening. We all have similar temptations. Uh, though perhaps they manifest themselves in different ways. We all are looking for ways to minimize our sin. We duck and weave and dodge the light of self-knowledge and honesty before God and man. We wear fig leaves like our first parents to hide our shameful sins. A big part of sanctification starts uh, with being honest with yourself, with God, and with others. And that's why a church must cultivate an environment of both grace and repentance. The church should be a place where you can Come as you are. The church should be a place where people in transition, not, not everyone that has it all figured out. I've been at churches that, you know, newly converted me would be totally lost in. And I work hard at our church to make sure those sort of people are welcome and try to think through how to do that. So yeah, absolutely, come as you are, but you, the church must never be a place where you can stay as you are, Right? We have to preach in such a way that calls them to repentance. So grace and repentance, always together, like mercy on people. But mercy does not excuse 
uh, a lifestyle of sin. Obedience means all the way, right away, from a cheerful heart. That's what we, like, son, if you haven't done it all the way, right away, with a cheerful heart, you have not obeyed, right? So when they, they walk around shuffling, like, with that, like, angry face, like, still not there yet, you know, you better get better at hiding it. But even then, I'm your dad. I see all, you know. <laughs> it's great how, how smart you think you are. Oh, you, don't even, you don't even know. We did it all before you. That's how we know what you're up to, right? You're our, you're our clones or mini-me's. You're from our genes. Um, all the way right away from a cheerful heart. In other words, partial obedience is delayed obedience. It's uh, partial. It's grudging obedience. And it's still rebellion. Such was the case with Saul. So it says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Saul's rejection of the word of the Lord set him onto the path that would eventually have him seeking guidance from who? A witch, divination, the witch of Andor. There's something kind of like a seance. Uh, Man's religious to the core. He's never neutral. He will always seek out a word that has divine authority for guidance. So when he turns from the word of God, he'll turn to some other source. Sometimes it's witches, sometimes it's the light within, sometimes it's the science, like it's some sort of monolith. Um, But we're always going elsewhere. Hence, paganism and all sorts of other idolatries are on the rise in our country because we, as a nation, have turned from the word, and we don't honor the word. Verse 20 through 24, it looks like Saul's repentant, but not really. Verse 30, he says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He's just trying to save face. He wants to look good in the people's eyes, not the Lord's. And that is why this should be a fearful passage for us, for you. I hope you see yourself and quickly repent. You may say, well, Saul isn't elect. I'm elect. And I don't want to undermine your confidence in the work of God. But if you say, I don't have to worry about ending up like Saul, after all, he who created you will be faithful to keep it until the day of Christ. I'll say, well, true. But God keeps you in part by you heeding warnings. The born again see those warnings and they heed it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they finish the race set before them. So when you see these, take heed. You know, when you see, when you're going 70 miles down the road and you see a sign that says, you know, it's a little yellow one, it's a turn sign, and it says 15 miles an hour on the turn, uh, you know, you're an idiot if you don't slow down. That's, it's there to heed. A good driver slows down. A, a believer, when he sees what the word says and warns, he takes it to heart because he loves God. Now, no one's perfect, obviously. Right? That's, God is always working in us, and that's why we have the, the church and, and pastors to call us back. But even then, we respond. We respond to it. So you have to take heed from these warnings. They stir us up. The elect, those who have been born again, uh, will heed warnings and therefore finish the race. So take heed. Now look, there is another king uh, that sinned and was confronted by a prophet. And unlike Saul, David immediately repented and took full blame for his rebellion, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Powerful testimony. Cultivate that. You know, always think, have I sinned in this? Now, that's, you don't want to be this guy that makes up sins. 
uh, to feel like some sort of false humility, but always consider the possibility. Uh, and when you see other people fall into sin, uh, what you should say is like, how could that happen to me? Lord, search me and find any wicked way in me. But here's what David says. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So keep your sacrifices. God demands a broken and contrite heart, and he has provided a sacrifice for you in the Lamb of God. So take a warning from Saul's example and be quick to emulate King David's response to correction. Listen to the voice of your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every week, every Lord's Day, we get to gather and be with your people and sense you dwelling in our midst, reminding us of the great work you've accomplished for us on our behalf through your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you uh, for the Lord's Supper that we are lifted up into the heavenlies and we dine with you. And we know that we have been washed by the blood, clothed in white robes, and are an object of love instead of an object of wrath. Your face shines upon us. You love us, Father. We thank you for that. Lord, as we consider your shining face that sees all, would you move us to repent of sin, make no provision for it, to keep short accounts, and learn from both good and negative examples. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.